This week on the Inside Transportation Podcast, Jason and I talk about whether it was acceptable for two electric vehicle companies to accept paycheck protection program loans. We talk a bit about Anthony Lewandowski, Tesla's upcoming U.S. production facility, and Jason shares a celebrity story from the Cybertruck Unveil event. Stay tuned to find out more. The Inside Transportation Podcast is sponsored by Ford Motor Company. Built on the belief that freedom of movement drives human progress from connectivity to autonomy, AI to machine learning, Ford has one simple goal, to improve mobility for its customers. To learn more about Ford's work in mobility, autonomous vehicles, and their corporate efforts to improve mobility for its customers, visit corporate.ford.com. That's corporate.ford.com. The Inside Transportation Podcast is also sponsored by Fenwick & West. Fenwick & West is one of the world's first and leading law firms dedicated to technology and transportation. Learn more about how Fenwick can help companies tackle the complex legal and business issues of autonomous transportation at Fenwick.com. That's F-E-N-W-I-C-K.com. Hello, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Inside Transportation Podcast, a production of Insight.com, a newsletter company. This is our weekly podcast where we discuss transportation trends and news that you need to know to stay ahead of the curve. My name is Johan Marino, and I'm the writer of the Inside Transportation and Inside Electric Vehicles newsletters. And I'm joined here by my co-host, the king of Clubhouse, <laughs> angel investor, podcaster, and Inside.com CEO, Jason Calacanis. All right, here we are, episode two. Yeah, so before we run through the most important transportation news stories happening right now, I have a few requests to our listeners. If you haven't subscribed to our podcast on your favorite platform yet, like Overcast or Apple Podcast, we will be releasing a new episode every Thursday. I want to make sure you don't miss out on it, so go ahead and subscribe. Also, if you love the podcast and want to help other people find it, be sure to leave a five-star review on wherever you listen to this podcast. I heard Jason may mm. even bake you a loaf of sourdough. Absolutely. Yeah, or tweet about it. Maybe even tweet Drake and the Kardashians. Absolutely. Write a letter to your friend. Tell them about this great podcast we're putting together on all things transportation. I think they would enjoy it. So let's head into the news here. Yeah. As I'm sure you know, Jason, the Paycheck Protection Program is a very big news story right now. As thousands of small business owners have struggled to pay rent and keep their employees on staff, Two electric vehicle companies, one of them backed by venture capital, the other one publicly traded, have applied and received Paycheck Protection Program loans from the Small Business Administration. Faraday Future received a $9.1 million loan from the program, which is close to the $10 million ceiling allowed by the SBA. Workhorse Group also received a $1.4 million loan, which the company says will be used to cover payroll costs. The company employs about 81 workers. Keep this in mind, though. Workhorse lost nearly $38 million in 2019. The company, while not very well-known, specializes in selling electric trucks to fleet and enterprise customers, and their future revenue is highly dependent on a contract to develop a next-generation electric mail truck for the U.S. Postal Service. Faraday Future, as I'm sure we're all familiar with, their struggles have been very well documented. And it seems that every few months there's a news story discussing how the company's existence is hanging on by a thread. Last year, The Verge reported Faraday Future lost $2.15 billion since the company was founded. It was saved by a $45 million loan from a restructuring firm. And the company said it paid that loan back. Uh, Jason, do you think these companies should be getting these loans? Yeah, so it's an interesting question. You know, the Trump administration and Congress did this PPP program in record time, so I think they deserve some amount of kudos for that. Um, mm -hmm. For some reason, they got this done, but they couldn't get testing done on a federal level for the coronavirus, so that to me is bizarre. Uh, but putting that issue aside, it is extraordinary, given that the stimulus packages we did in the 2008 financial crisis took you know, six months, a year, you know, it was, it was a lot of back and forth. This was done very quickly. I think people knew that there was going to be a shock to the system. And the point of these loans were to help small businesses uh, keep paying people. 
right? And I mm-hmm. think the way it was calculated was two and a half times your last month's rent or uh, last month's payroll or something to that effect. So it's not meant to be like a year of payroll. It's not meant to supplement uninsure, um, um, unemployment insurance. It's meant to just keep a, a company from laying people off. And there was a little bit of a lack of clarity of who should get these. We want them to go to small companies that are in danger, uh, in my mind, of going out of business uh, and people losing their jobs permanently. I think that's kind of the spirit of this, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And it wasn't exactly clear, but there was another company, Shake Shack, uh, Danny Meyer's yes. company, that got a $10 million, the cap, and they uh, returned it because they had been loan shamed. And Harvard got $9 million. They have a $42 billion endowment or something like that. And Chamath, uh, my friend, the venture capitalist, uh, he uh, loan shamed them and said, that's insane. So mm-hmm. the I think the public and journalists, uh, and uh, including yourself, are on top of this and looking at it and saying, is this fair or not? So just thinking about a company that has had billions of dollars invested in it, why would they even take it? It makes no sense. Why would a publicly traded company take it? It makes no sense. And you know, I'm an angel investor in 200 companies. I've got a small investment firm here in Silicon Valley. And of course, a lot of my companies were interested in this. Um, and not because it's free money, but because it would keep them from laying people off and it would let them keep people employed because nobody really knows how long this coronavirus quarantine is going to last. We're in week uh, five or six of it here in the Bay Area. I'm not sure what... Where are you, Johan? I'm not actually sure. I'm in uh, Texas. So you're in Texas. So I'm in the San Antonio area, yeah. Is week four for you of quarantine or three? Yeah, but people are very lax about it here. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's the spirit of Texas, though. Yeah, we'll see how that works out. I mean, it's warmer. De- There's something with the the heat and coronavirus um, that they've speculated. And, and obviously, some places like Texas is big. Places like New York are dense. Yeah. Well, and I mean, just the, the in terms of the population per square mile, it's completely different than something like Manhattan or New York City. So anyway, right. it, it feels to me that companies that are very large with large deep pockets should not be taking this money. And in the venture capital community, people are like, venture capital has all this money. Well, yes and no. Uh, a venture capitalist could not possibly backstop their high growth companies and all the positions and employees in it. They, they just don't have enough dry powder in other words, cash reserves. So it wouldn't actually work, um, and investors wouldn't actually do it. But for companies that are big, like Shake Shack, uh, it does seem crazy that they would take it. I think they did the right thing giving it back. Ruth Chris Steakhouse took a giant one as well. That makes no sense for them to take it. And it's a little bit confusing, but clearly these are companies that should not be taking it, in my mind. I, when I was talking to other investors uh, publicly on Twitter, I'm at Jason on Twitter, I said, you know, just thinking about this, if your company has more than 18 months of runway, in, in other words, the amount of money you lose every month divided by your cash reserves equals runway. So if you had $1.8 million in your bank account, or let's say $2 million in your bank account, and you lost $100,000 a month in your company, you have 20 months of runway, maybe you don't need this. You're going to get through the crisis. But if you have under 18 months, maybe there's an argument that two months would be a pretty great thing to have. And so... Um, we blew through that first 350 million or whatever it was of this. And I think we're going to look back on it and the people who took money like this are going to get loan shamed and properly so. Right. My argument here, Faraday Future, they came out of, I think it was like 2016, 2017. They said they were going to have a, they were going to have a car available for sale by 2017. It's 2020. This company hasn't released anything. Hmm. Their founder, Gio Yuting is bankrupt the company's on terrible footing. And personally, I think these companies should have been gone by now, right? When you look at Tesla and what they're doing in the marketplace, other automakers that are putting in these heavy investments like Volkswagen and you know Ford, one of the sponsors of our podcast, they're investing billions of dollars into their electric vehicle initiatives because it's not just producing the vehicle but it's also you know being able to market it being able to service it and would you feel confident as a vehicle buyer knowing that this company that you're buying a car from a car that you hope will last you for many years you know some people drive the same car for over a decade right if you expect a company to you know deliver that kind of quality 
and they can't pay their 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 checks they can't you know pay payroll yeah, it they, makes no sense they need this, and, and to your point you know i i bought the tesla roadster the 16th one of the first 100 of the roadsters were signature series i have number 16 i actually tweeted it the other day because i took it out for a ride i take it out like once a month i did see that that yeah, was really cool it was fun <laughs> um, it's a fun car it's a little scary uh on at highway speeds uh it's like a little bug it zips so fast and it's like so low to the ground that like i think you could do one of those fast and furious and go under an 18 wheeler uh, do not try this at home that's not advice that's just a speculative uh, statement but uh yeah i mean i bought that car and i think a lot of people were like okay uh when tesla goes out of business and there was that moment in time where tesla had a couple of weeks of salary uh in the bank during the financial crisis actually which is a really interesting um bookend to this story people were like oh my god what's going to happen to our cars that we spent 150 the signature series were 150 each i think all in with taxes and everything so you basically were going to buy a $150,000 hood ornament to put in your garage. Um, but it didn't work out that way. And, you know, Tesla, to their credit, they still service those roadsters pretty well. Uh, I got a new battery pack put in it because I- Oh, that's awesome. Well, <laughs> it, was, it wasn't awesome. I only had like 15,000 miles on the car, but I had it stored uh, somewhere and a person had to move it. And when they plugged it back in, they didn't push the dial in on the um, charging cable and they bricked mm -hmm. it. Right. So it was a thirty thousand dollar brick. <laughs> it was pretty brutal. Yeah, not fun. But now I have the four hundred, almost four hundred mile battery in the Roadster, which is ridiculous because you do not want to go on a six hour drive in that car. It's tiny uh, and there's no power steering, and you feel every bump. It's it's a pretty um, a raw experience. But yeah, this is crazy that people would even do that. I, I I'm very interested in this workhorse company. They make incredibly ugly trucks that look like they're just slapped together. <laughs> And um, it feels to me well, like they're a perfect candidate to make a really, really ugly um, post office, post office uh, mail truck. It makes no sense, really, to be totally honest, um, that companies would take this uh, and that we would screw up the free market for those kind of companies. Those companies that have escape velocity, they've been public already. They've got billions of dollars in investment. They're part of the free market and part of the free market. And what's great about entrepreneurship is that we have winners and losers. And the losers then have no more money invested in them. And the best talent from the losing companies go work at the winning companies and they go away. And then the market gets competitive amongst who's left, right? And that's really what you want in a dynamic economy. You don't want the government picking favorites. And this is screams of not relief or not temporary relief for the street and for small town USA, which is what it was intended for it starts to feel like picking favorites. And then that's the thing I'm concerned about with this overall relief package, whether since we're talking about transportation, you know, should the airlines um, be bailed out? And it's like, well, what if an airline, oh my God, we're going to lose our airline. And it's like, well, if they don't ever go out of business and they build up all this debt, now you have these airline executives who've been running these companies for a long time, who are totally incompetent, who lever these companies up with a ton of debt and uh, you know, it's uh, it's it's a bit of a disaster to keep these company these airlines afloat when uh, they're mismanaged, and that it's just a big problem, I think. And I know that segues into our next topic. Yeah, and we're going to be talking a little bit about the collapse of Virgin Australia Airlines when we come back on the Inside Transportation podcast. We're going to take a quick break. Stay tuned. Hey, everybody. I just want to let you know that this episode of Inside Transportation is sponsored by our friends at the Ford Motor Company, built on the belief that freedom of movement drives human progress from connectivity to autonomy. Ford has one simple goal, and that's to improve the mobility of its customers. Ford has been using technology to shape the future of transportation for over 100 years and is dedicated to solving the world's most pressing mobility issues. What you might not know is that Ford has a series of divisions that make these visions a reality. Ford X is Ford's venture incubator that unites entrepreneurs, designers, and engineers to shape the future of transportation. Ford's City Innovations team brings innovative ideas to life through community workshops, crowdsourcing initiatives, and citywide mobility challenges. And Spin, a property of Ford, brings e-scooter sharing to cities and college campuses. So here's your call to action. To learn more about Ford's work in mobility, autonomous vehicles, and their global efforts to improve mobility for its customers, visit corporate.ford.com. That's corporate.ford.com. Thanks again to Ford for sponsoring independent media like this podcast. 
All right, and we're back here on the Inside Transportation Podcast. Johan Marino, Jason Calcanis, running through some of the most important news stories happening in the transportation industry. Before the break, we were talking a little bit about airlines. And Jason, you might be kind of interested in knowing this. Um, Obviously, Virgin hasn't been in the U.S. market um, as an airline for quite some time. Yeah, they sold sold Virgin America to Alaska Airlines, which was just heartbreaking because it was my favorite airline. Yeah, it was a really fun airline. And they really changed the game in the U.S. market. Um, But Virgin still operates, at least for now, they still operate in Australia and the U.K., but they are the latest airline to face a dire financial situation as they've entered voluntary administration in Australia. So this is about the Virgin Australia airline. Um, Administrators at Deloitte have taken control of the airline and are looking to restructure the business and find a new owner. More than 10 groups have already expressed an interest to acquire the airline. Um, You might be kind of curious to know this, but the airline isn't fully owned by Virgin Group. It's owned uh, by a multitude of different companies that have interests in airlines. So Singapore Airlines owns a part, Etihad Airways, I don't know if I said that right, HNA Group, uh, Nanshan Group, which both of those, I believe, are Japanese and Chinese airline operators. So they all own about 20% of it. Um, This is actually really interesting, though, is that Branson said, Richard Branson said that it's likely that either airline, either Virgin Atlantic or the Australian airline, would not survive the COVID-19 crisis without some sort of government aid. Um, Branson said that Virgin Australia's presence in the market is important. Because otherwise, Qantas, which is the other domestic carrier serving Australia, would dominate the travel industry in Australia. Virgin is going to continue operating all their scheduled flights in Australia for the moment. Deloitte doesn't expect to lay off or change any operations at the moment. Um, And the fate of the airline should be clear in about two to three months. Uh, Another really interesting uh, part of this story is that Richard Branson, we all know him for his private island, Nectar Island in the British Virgin Islands. And he's willing to put up that island yeah. as a collateral to save the stakes in his airlines. So kind of going off what you were just talking about, uh, you know, whether or not um, airlines should be bailed out, what are some other options for them? And then just in general, you know, the second part of the question there is, how do you think airline travel and pricing is going to change after COVID-19? Yeah, you know, the, the airline business is not an easy business, obviously, and mm-hmm. the, the, a lot of these companies have been mismanaged and run poorly, uh, and there hasn't been traditionally enough competition. And if you bail out the ones that were, you know, in debt or poorly run, then the ones who did a great job are getting penalized because it would be like the great restaurant that had a perfect rating and amazing service. Um, had the restaurant go out of store next door because the food was terrible, the service was terrible, and the, and the ingredients were terrible. And the government comes in and is like, oh, no, here's the best ingredients. We'll give you a bunch of money. You can still compete. You know, and it's just unfair, right? It feels unfair. Now, um, to your point about what should happen and how will things look differently, um, I am a believer that in during these crises, we overestimate while we're in them the changes uh, that will occur. So after 9-11, we thought the entire world would be different. People said, we'll never have irony or humor again. They'll never be comedians. It'd just be too inappropriate to make jokes um, about anything. Just, you know, not even 9-11 jokes or terrorism jokes, just jokes in general would be just such poor taste. We'll never laugh again. And of course, that never happened. So I, I, I'm mm-hmm. fairly confident we're going to find a solution to the coronavirus, um, and in a year or two, there'll be just as many people traveling as there are now, and we'll go back to it, um, and we'll be right back at it. What should happen here is Virgin Australia should go bankrupt. All the people who own equity in it should get washed out, and they should raise more money, and those people who had an interest in it could then bid to take the company over, which is what Richard Branson is saying he would do. Uh, And Necker Island... Uh, I've been there actually twice. Um, a friend oh. of mine invited me twice there. And Was it Richard Branson? Uh, it, Richard didn't invite me, but Richard was there both times and hung out with us a uh-huh. whole bunch. He's a fun guy. And actually, I talked to him a whole bunch about Virgin, the sale of Virgin America, but I'll leave that conversation uh, off to the side. He actually owns two islands there. He owns Mosquito and Necker, and his private residence is on Mosquito, and he, he's developing that with a couple of houses. And actually, everybody swims 
on one day, he had everybody, the two times I was there, swim from, I didn't do this, but a bunch of people did, swim from Necker Island to Mosquito. Um, and then uh, he hosted us and we literally had sushi in his pool and hung out with him. He's a real fun guy. Um, That's awesome. It, it, it cost, I think it costs $250,000 a week to rent Necker Island. And I think you can, you get like 12 rooms for that. So it seems outrageous at first. Um, but I think it winds up being 10K a person, roughly $1,200 a night per person. And it's a really wonderful, charming place to do something. So it's, it's high end for sure. But I mean, the Amman Hotel would be more expensive or similar price, right? Like a five, six star hotel experience. Um, so That's I'm not true. sure what yeah. that island would be worth. I, have a, I know another friend who owns two of the islands down there uh, in the in the British Virgin Islands. I'm going to guess that island is worth, um, I would say... You know, if you just think about how much money it makes, it could make $10, 20000000 million a year maybe. It's probably worth $50 million the island. Um, okay. But probably not more than that, right? Uh, right. Something He's in that He's going to need a lot of cash, right? So it's not actually that much cash, but I think it's symbolically an interesting thing for him to do. Um, and mm -hmm. that's what should happen, is the existing cap table should get wiped out, and then they do what's called pay for play. If you want to still have equity in the company, all of those people could get crammed down. So let's say those people all own 20%. You could say to them, either invest $50 million each right now, and you get to maintain, I don't know, 5% of your position, and you get to invest in the next round and the next round as we restructure this thing, and it's pay to play. And if you don't put your money in, you don't get to keep your shares. Mm -hmm. So of those five or six players, if three of them decide they want to put more money in, they can. The other three or four people either get a de minimis amount of shares or they get wiped out. That's typically how this goes down in the real world. So for them to give them a bunch of money and bail them out, it seems unfair. Um, and in terms of flying to Australia, I, I took United. I was in Australia twice in the last two years. We had our launch festival down there. Um, and I took United both times, I believe. Uh, so I think you have three carriers, who, uh, four carriers who will fly you there. Air, Air New Zealand does too. So I think there's four carriers at least who fly there. It might be also a Japanese airline that flies there too. Um, but those are the four I know of from America that have regular flights. And inside of Australia, between the different cities in Australia, you know, Australia is a pretty big place, actually. It's a big landmass, and it takes four or five hours to fly from, you know, different areas. It's sort of like flying from one side of America to the other. Um, it's that wow. it's that big. Uh, and north-south is, you know, like a three or four-hour ride. So uh, they do need to have transportation there, but I, I don't think... Uh, the argument that they have to be there for there to be competition uh, flies because some other upstart will then come into the market. And so I think right. what Branson's best situation here is if he only owns 10% is to let the thing go into receivership and buy it back. So my question to you, though, is how do you think, you know, if, if we're looking at the airline industry's recovery, right? Because before all of this happened, airlines were setting record numbers of passengers and fares were dirt cheap. Right, you could go from New York to Barcelona for three hundred dollars. Bonkers, and that—that's an insane price. And the reason why they were able to do that was because airlines have always been buoyed by um, business travelers, right? So you know, everyone filling up the front of the cabin, all the first class business travelers—they're making up the bulk of the revenue for airlines. So, in terms of recovery, do you think we're going to see all the business travelers go in first, and then? slowly we'll see leisure travels and, and everyone else who fills up the rest of the plane kind of fill up the plane as, as time goes on. Yeah, I, I think it's going to spring back. I think people, you can see it already. I mean, we're we're what, four or five, depending on what city you're in in America, you're in week three, four, five, six of quarantine. And as you said, it's pretty porous in Texas. And then other places are talking about going right back into movie theaters. So I think people want to take the risk. I mean, unfortunately, I think a lot of people would rather risk getting infected um, and they're willing to do really high risk things. The The design of planes is going to be another issue. You know, the, one of the reasons they're able to lower these prices is that they just cram you into these mm -hmm. uh, seats and it's, it's really tight quarters, which is not uh, ideal for spreading viruses. Uh, right. You would want a little bit of space between people. So I, I think there might be an argument when these airlines come back of a phased approach of the middle seats don't get filled and you can only buy the aisle or the window and the middle seats stay open in order to protect against, you know, contact. And, you know, when you're in business class or first class, uh, which, you know, I'd say I travel in three out of four times now. I'm lucky enough to do that on short flights. I don't bother. It's not worth it. Um, right. 
I always clean my seat. I always keep Clorox wipes with me. And I would get on my seat just for the last couple of years and I would clean my seat down because I read that the the seat pockets, that the cleaning crews that go through just do a cursory wipe. So basically what they're doing is they're wiping all the bacteria and dirt in a circle. So they're just taking whatever bacteria is in seat one and like hitting seat one, two, and three with it. And so I would sit down yeah. and I would take out a wipe or two and I would wipe down the arm rails. I'd wipe down the, um, not that I would use the pouch for where the magazine pouch is in the, in the seat in front of me. I wouldn't use that anyway because that's supposed to be where all the dirt is. But I just wipe anything down in case I would touch it because uh, I'm going to be on the plane for five, six or even 12 hours going you know, to Australia or Japan. And the last time I took a flight, like uh, five, six, maybe it was six weeks ago, I went to Houston like the week or two before quarantine. Um, I was wiping my seat down and four other people in business class on the way to Houston were wiping it down. Uh, and that we, everybody just had a good laugh about it. So that means out of the 12 seats in business, I think probably, and that one or two other people probably had done it before. I go, I'm always the last to get on. That's my strategy is go on last. Yeah. And I don't bring a lot of bags with me, just a backpack and I don't check. So yeah, yeah. I like to get on last and minimize my time yeah, on the flight. And, and since you said, um, you know, the middle seats are probably not going to be filled for a while I think prices are going to go up sure. in terms of airline, you know, tickets. I also think air, air airplane improvement projects cuz I mean I've seen some really nice work being done on airplanes in the US. Mm. Um, you know, they're probably going to be halted across the board because airlines are the ones contributing to the projects. Um and you know like I kind of said, what kind of dirt cheap international flights? What kind are of, gone. Yeah, they're done. Well, well, you never know. They might be if they're going to get subsidized. And countries might want to uh, get travel going. They could always subsidize it a bit. What, what were the improvements that were coming? I'm curious. Were people redesigning cabins to give people more room or something? Well, redesigning um, airports. Ah, yes. That's been yeah, incredible. It, yeah. 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 So I, I don't know if you've noticed over the past few years, but you know, even um, JFK, Terminal 4, it's a really nice terminal. Now. Yeah. There's some beautiful you know, LAX, same. LAX um, is looking good, the Southwest Terminal. Here's uh, SFO. They've been redoing the terminals. The only thing that is a complete and utter disaster is I went through LaGuardia, which was a huge... Everybody's like, don't do LaGuardia. And I was like, ah, how bad can it be? <laughs> I mean, it literally, like, I think that you would get better service and an easier uh, path to the airport uh, in downtown Baghdad, you know, six months after Desert Storm <laughs> 1 or 2. I mean, it literally looked like... The airport had been bombed. I mean, it was unbelievable the amount of stuff being ripped up. It was brutal. Um, right. And they're spending a lot of money to revamp that airport. Yeah. And we might not see those improvements if, let's say, you know, all the carriers that were funding those improvements can't pay it, pay it out, you know? We're definitely going to have, I think, the sanita I think one of the main takeaways is going to be sanitation on shared transportation is going to go through the roof. So I think any ride sharing car, they're going to have, you know, antibacterial wipes will become like a standard in your uh, backseat cushion on a flight or in a in a in a, an Uber or Lyft. And then I think you're going to see people on the subways wearing the masks and wearing gloves. So when you go to Japan, you see routinely people wearing the masks and wearing gloves. And uh, cab drivers wear gloves in Japan, um, and it's really beautiful. Like they're wearing white gloves and a jacket and tie and a hat. It's quite charming. Um, like they dress better than Lincoln Town Car Black drivers here, you know, like yeah. uh, literally better than Uber Black in China. I'm sorry, Japan, which was hilarious for me as an Uber investor. Um, I was shocked at how the taxi in Japan was as good or maybe some people would argue better than taking an Uber. And people were not taking Ubers in Japan all that much. It was, the Lincoln, I think they have a really hard time there because the cabs, taxi cabs are so right. good. And we're actually going to talk about Uber in a few seconds, yeah. but let's break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about whether Uber has a responsibility to pay the legal fees of an embattled <laughs> former self-driving engineer. Um, and we're also going to have a new segment called Dope or Nope. So right. I hope uh, you guys all stick around and uh, we'll be right back. Hey, everybody. Let me take a moment to thank Fenwick and West. They're one of the world's first and leading law firms dedicated to technology and life sciences. They operate in the fast lane of innovation where ideas often outpace changes in the law. That's where you find Fenwick's autonomous transportation and shared mobility practice, steering startups, technology giants, and major automotive companies through rapidly evolving legal, business, and regulatory challenges, which we talk about here on Inside Transportation all the time. A Silicon Valley original, Fenwick is a national law firm with offices in Mountain View, San Francisco, Seattle, New York, Santa Monica, and even Shanghai. 
So here's your call to action. Learn more about how Fenwick can help companies tackle the complex legal and business issues of autonomous transportation at Fenwick.com. That's F-E-N-W-I-C-K.com. Thanks again to Fenwick for providing great legal services to me. I use them personally uh, for, and for our investments and uh, for supporting independent media like Inside Transportation. Let's get back to this amazing episode. Welcome back to the Inside Transportation podcast. Um, Jason Calcanis, Johan Marino, uh, and we're talking about Uber. So Uber does not want to pay Anthony Lewandowski's legal fees. Jason, are you familiar with Anthony Lewandowski at all? <laughs> Am I ever? <laughs> oh my lord! Uh, so Uber says it's not responsible for paying a one hundred seventy-nine million dollar fine that was levied on the former employee. Um, Anthony Lewandowski, he recently pled guilty to stealing those trade secrets from Waymo before he started his own company, Auto. Now, Auto was quickly acquired by Uber. Um, a court ordered Lewandowski to pay Alphabet $179 million, although Lewandowski thinks that the company sh- that would have ultimately benefited from the technology they should be paying the bill. It's ridiculous. In the Kalanick days, uh, Lewandowski said the company agreed to cover any legal fees that stemmed from the auto acquisition. Uber argues that Levin- when Lewandowski pled guilty to his charges, he committed fraud, and the company has no obligation to cover his legal fees. Of course not. Uber says he secretly committed a crime by stealing trade secrets, and the company would have never entered an agreement with him if they knew that was the case. Just for reference, keep in mind, auto... Uh, was actually co-founded with Lior Ron. Yeah, great guy. He's been uh, on the he, po- my podcast this week in startups. Yeah. Um, he settled with Google earlier this year for $9.7 million. So a good lesson learned here. Always settle. <laughs> I'm sure Elon learned that. Um, Jason, do you think Uber has a responsibility to cover his legal fees? Yeah. So I don't have any inside information. Let me say that perfectly clear since I wasn't an early investor in Uber. Um, and I don't know um, Anthony at all. Um, I don't think I've ever met him, but I, I know Lior and it's a great guy. Um, let's be clear. He was not an employee of Uber who stole trade secrets. So he wasn't working at Uber and then broke into the offices at Google and Waymo. He was working mm-hmm. for Google. He then, according to the case, backed up all the trade secrets on a thumb drive or laptop or some digital device, and then tried to bring them to Uber. And when he tried to bring them to Uber, Uber said, get this out of here and fired him and got and realized, like, we don't want anything to do with this. Like they should. No one in the world wants to seal trade secrets. This is America, not China. In America, we have a legal system. And the the damage is caused by stealing trade secrets is huge. It is phenomenal. As you can see in this case, $179 million is you know uh, what he was ordered to pay. It's not a joke. And he could have gone to jail. And I think he, maybe he could still go to jail. Yeah, he, he's facing federal charges. Yeah, so. I mean, this is not a joke. Yeah. This is the civil case, right? We're talking about here. And then there's a, a yeah, federal a case. He may go to jail against, for this. It's yeah. no joke in America. We he respect- could spend up to 30 months in jail. Right. And, and, you know, I mean, uh, listen, without me knowing the intricacies of the case, it sounds like, to be totally honest, maybe he should do some time because, you know, if a kid selling a, you know, a brick of, uh, you know, cannabis gets 30 years and this guy steals massive trade secrets and gets 30 months, that seems like maybe it should be reversed. I'm going to put that aside for a second that we've got hundreds of thousands of people who are not white in jail for cannabis and someone like this does a real crime and, you know, is going to get off scot-free and is, you know, trying to get somebody else to pay his legal bill. Um, mm-hmm. the, the point here is, you know, no company wants to be involved in any kind of trade secrets. Google, Facebook, Microsoft, Uber, Lyft, no matter how competitive you are, nobody in their right mind would ever want to steal a trade secret. And there's three or four reasons for this. Number one, you know, and this is the lowest level of ethics and morality. If you get caught, the price is very high. Right. On a more pragmatic million. Yeah. <laughs> and going to jail. And yeah. you know, uh forever being a pariah. I mean, this is a person who uh Anthony, who obviously was an all-star for a long time, and now his career is over and he might be going to jail. So there's a huge price to be paid. But putting that aside, none of this technology is such that you need to steal the trade secrets. You don't need to steal them. And Back to pragmatic, 
I mean, these are all kind of pragmatic reasons. You should not steal because it's just morally wrong and corrupt and, and evil and unethical. But if your parents didn't raise you right and you are an absolutely unethical person, the, the list of uh, practical reasons not to do this are the price is high. You're going to get caught. You're obviously going to get caught. Do you think that because... they used him as an example? Yes. To Silicon Valley? Well, no. Google hates Uber. So they really didn't right. like Travis. And that they wanted to make an example. Remember, Google also invested in Uber. But yeah. uh, Google did not like Travis. They did not like uh, Uber. And, uh, you know, there were rumors for a long time that Google might buy Uber and combine it with Waymo. And that would have been this incredible one-two punch. Obviously, you got, you know, today's... Millions of drivers, billions of rides combined with yeah, tomorrow. Yeah, and I think future. Alphabet actually, out of all of this, they own a stake. They owned a stake in Uber, in Uber I, and they, yeah. I think they sold it and they cleared themselves that position. But putting all that aside, um, you're going to get caught. There's another practical reason. If these are real trade secrets, you're going to get caught. It's so easy to pull up the source code. It's so easy to look at the technology. And it's very hard to protect, you know, like sort of generic innovations. And a license is not that expensive. So if you did need a piece of technology and you didn't license, people do licensing deals all the time. You would just pay a fee for the technology. So there's just a long list of reasons. And obviously, covering somebody's legal costs does not cover their legal bills. That's for like if there was like a dispute about his contract or something like that. It obviously does not include committing federal crimes. And so um, I think... He uh, he needs to get the book thrown at him. He is getting the book thrown at him, and Uber shouldn't pay it on principle, and Uber should fight to the end of all time, even though Uber could pay it pretty easily. Uh, Uber should but, fight but for look, all I time that, to let this yeah, guy I, out hang to dry, 100%. I think he has a case here because if he was an employee for Uber— he right. was never an employee. And they bought the company. Yeah, he bought the company, right? right. And okay. then he, they bought but he the was company, a part of the he, or hid. he yeah. hid that he but, stole the stuff. And when they found out, they told him no. Do not bring this here. But I, I think we have to think about the culture, right, that was going on at Uber at the time when all of this was happening and how the self-driving vehicle development race was happening at the same time where you had all these companies competing against each other to be the first company to have a self-driving car on the road, right? So it was a, you know, the stakes were high for everyone involved for Waymo, for Uber. I mean, this was back when when Travis was at the helm of Uber. And I mean, their whole business future was dependent on having self-driving cars. Yeah, yes and right? no. Yes and no. I mean, everybody, the, the assumption was it would be important to have a stake in this, but that there would be five to 10 players who would all at the same time, roughly have the same technology. And so that was actually what everybody believed. And it was important to do your best. But if you got the silver or bronze medal, you know, and you didn't get the gold, if Waymo got gold and Tesla got silver and you got bronze or, you know, flip the order, um, it was going to be fine because all the technology would kind of drop at the same time and regulation would all kind of drop at the same time. It would be somewhat of a level playing field. But that was actually how people thought internally. Um, and that, that is kind of inside information um, and how yeah, they thought. I'm but you can't take Uber's cutthroat culture and then say... You know, they, I, this is my position. Obviously, I'm super biased. Just because they had a cutthroat culture and there were mistakes made in their culture and Travis was sharp elbowed, he was not so sharp elbowed that he wanted the stuff stolen. And in fact, when this stuff came to him, he said, do not bring this here. And he fired him. So it would be a whole different story if he said, please bring this stuff here. Or he said, oh, you have this stuff? Great. Let's get to work. He did the opposite. I mean, it, everybody knows. Travis knew he was a target. So he would never, um, he, he would never do this himself. And he would, just knowing him as a person for a long time, he would never do this and he would never condone it. And they right. didn't, right? So anyway, I, I have strong feelings about this. I think this guy is a real piece of work and he deserves to get the book thrown at him. <laughs> yeah. So next up on the Inside Transportation News Roundtable, Tesla has plans to build another production facility in the US mm. and the race is on to find the next location. So... Elon uh, Musk, the CEO of Tesla, said the new production facility will focus on Cybertruck and Model Y production for the East Coast, saying the plant would be located in the central U.S. The automaker has been linked to two locations, in the one in the Austin, Texas area, the other one in Nashville, Tennessee. Tennessee is home to many different vehicle and auto part production facilities. Nissan and Volkswagen have a huge presence in the state. And the state has also offered some really huge incentives for these companies to move. 
Nissan has received about $600 million in incentives, which is a combination of tax breaks and grants since they moved to the state in the 90s. Um, Texas has also tried to woo Tesla in the past when they ultimately built the battery production facility in Nevada. Um, Nevada has given Tesla about $1.3 billion in incentives. So everyone's kind of vying for this new factory. Um, Joplin, Missouri, which is a city in the state, uh, is offering Tesla a $1 billion incentive package to be the location of Tesla's next U.S. production facility. Uh, The city would be offering them a thousand acre site at a 50% discount would also waive Tesla's property tax for about 12 years along with other incentives. Um, Obviously we all are aware of the economic situation that's probably going to come out of, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic. It might induce a recession. Do you think that there's going to be a lot of States trying to get this factory because it'll basically be like a sign of hope or a symbol of promise of better things to come? I mean, what do you kind of see out of this whole situation? Well, um, again, with no inside information, um, I mean, obviously people know I'm friends with Elon, so um, he's he's talked about, you know, publicly looking at those places. I think uh, when a technology company, putting Tesla aside, is picking a location, they want a location that young, dynamic people want to live in. So just keep yeah. that in mind. And so when Amazon did their search for a second headquarters, they wound up in New York and D.C., Right. Um, and I was hoping they would do Miami because of the arts district and it's kind of cool and hip there and Nashville. I thought those would be the two places that would be really cool. Um, or Austin even. Um, and so it's not surprising that Austin is at the top of the list and that, uh, Nashville is because those are really cool cities for a 30 year old engineer, you know, or a 40 year old engineer with a family to raise a family and have an amazing lifestyle. Right. If you were to right. make a list and say to a young person, hey, uh, yeah, you graduated from Stanford. Here's 10 places you could go. You, here's 10 companies you could work for and 10 cities you could uh, work in. I think Nashville and Austin, uh, New York, L.A., uh, even San Francisco. Sparks, still. Nevada. <laughs> yeah. I, no. Uh, Nevada, no. Uh, but Nevada, I think, was just. You know the amount of space they needed for that gigafactory was tremendous. So, right, and the deal was just too good to pass up. Yeah, I guess uh, I don't know the specifics of it, but you know, I I think it's less about hope, and I think people overestimate like the the locations' um, ability to attract these versus the ability of the location to attract talent. So, if your city has a dope art scene, a great restaurant scene, is has affordable housing. Uh, an art scene, young people want to be there, a cool party scene. That's Austin and Nashville. So I put, if I were to handicap this, I'm going to go Austin 70%, Nashville 20%, other 10%. I'm going to say Tennessee all the way. Really? Because you have all of these auto part production Mm. plants in that state. That, right? that is a mitigating so probably, factor. I, I agree with that. But doesn't he also have all this SpaceX stuff in Texas? It make it a little more convenient. That's true, yeah. When he's but hopping around. I think the SpaceX stuff is nowhere near Austin. I think that's near the, it's the east. Gulf of Mexico. Yeah, it's in the Gulf yeah. of Mexico. But it's still Texas. Yeah. Right. Same state. Same state. Um, I think Texas, same size as Australia, right? To circle back to our second story. I think it's about the same size. <laughs> same footprint, for, yeah. right? Like flying from yeah. the east to the the east to the west tip of Texas. How many how long does that take? What's what what are the from west to east, what are the orders of the major cities? So it goes um, San Antonio, yeah, um, and then Austin. Uh-huh. As it's basically a triangle, right? Ah, Think of a triangle. Sure. So Dallas is at the top. Then we see Houston and Austin all in this like triangle God. shape. And then you have Dallas. I mean, there's so many great cities in Texas. Yeah. Um, you I know, I just Houston. moved here like a year ago, yeah. so I haven't had the privilege of traveling. Wait, which city are you, you know, in in from- Texas again? San Antonio. Here in San Antonio, yeah. yeah. That river walk is kind of dirty, though. <laughs> I say, you know, I got that river walk. Walk. I was, I was like, man, if you get, if you fall on that river walk, it's not gonna. No offense to people of San Antonio. 
That's not very pretty. That Riverwalk looks kind of junky. That water's it, kind of it, dirty. It's very, it's very dirty, I will say. But it's kind of a bubbling city, right? Because you have you have these arts districts that are yeah. opening as well in San Antonio. You have a lot of people who are coming from Austin into San Antonio. Is that right? And they're kind of yeah. And you have some tech companies out here, which is and cooler, it's really like hipper affordable. for young people. If you if it's it's obviously Austin, Houston, San Antonio in terms of hipness. Austin for sure. Yeah. I mean, you have two of the biggest music festivals yeah. um, in America there. You have a really amazing tech scene. Yeah. Right? You have So who's number two there. after Austin? We all know Austin's number one for hipness and young people having fun. I'd probably say Dallas. You go Dallas, okay. Dallas and then, you know, Houston um, and then San Antonio. I could live, I, mean, I could live. It's more of a family in, city, I would say. I could live in Austin. I might even be able to live in Houston. I, I really enjoyed Houston when I was there. But I heard it gets so hot in the summer that you just can't stay there. It gets really hot in California now, too, though. <laughs> you know, there's an <laughs> argument for that. San warming. Francisco, we have some hot days here, and people in San Francisco don't have air conditioning. And when I first moved up here, I've only been up here four years or so. I was in L.A. before that. Uh, people are like, you don't need air conditioning. There's like two days a year you need it. And now there's about 20 days a year you really need it, maybe 30. And none of the buildings allow it. Yeah, it might be six weeks. Um, Master Nick is saying six weeks. It literally is like the buildings are not designed for it. They don't have the duct work for it. And like they don't even have the duct work for heating. So a lot of buildings here that have heating have little electric heaters in the wall, not like central duct work at all. Mm -hmm. And so the whole place is just totally, uh, uh, there's a theory that San Francisco over the next 10, 20 years turns into Los Angeles. Los Angeles turns into Mexico. I don't know what that means in terms of temperature for Mexico. Yeah. But it might be it's probably blistering really humid, hot. I'm assuming. Yeah. But it gets hot over here, um, you know, but I've learned to live with it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when it's hot, you just stay inside. You got air conditioning yeah. and really affordable housing versus uh, California. <laughs> oh, I think that's the big problem in California. But one of the things we're all speculating here when talking about, like, since we're on the transportation podcast, is... Uh, now everybody's going to work from home. And so what does that do for mass transit, Uber, Lyft, and all these different services, buses, et cetera? If everybody works from home, uh, you know, there's like we talked about last week, I believe, there's no smog anymore, right? Well, that's interesting mm -hmm. as an effect, but okay. It's not like a specific sought after effect necessarily. It's like a second order effect that's really awesome. Um, but if people work from home, the commuting might become easier for the people who do have to go to offices. So then this idea that like the firefighter or the teacher trying to get into San Francisco or trying to get into LA has to commute three hours a day, that might go down as all these white collar keyboard jockeys, like both of us are keyboard jockeys and microphone jockeys. We can stay home. We can work from home. And everybody's getting this big education on how to set up a camera, how to set up lighting, how to set up microphones, how to use a headset, how to use a goddamn ethernet cable. For the love of God, people, get an Ethernet cable. I'm like, these young, <laughs> these millennials don't even know that Ethernet exists. They're like, what's that for? And I have Wi-Fi. And I'm like, Ethernet is what we I use. I had to learn the hard way. And that's why I'm in the kitchen, because that's where my uh, cable connection is. Yeah, well, you know what? <laughs> now we can hear you, and you're not breaking up. You're a professional now, Johan. Look. I know. I know. Doesn't it feel good, though? Doesn't I'm it feel good to be on that Ethernet yeah, it cable? It feels great. It feels pretty yeah. good. You do your speed test? You do your speed test? Yeah, it, it's running like 250. Feels pretty I good. I do the Wi-Fi. You look like at that 50... latency. Oh, so buttery. <laughs> so buttery. Listen, you care about performance, right? You want that. You I want, want that it to Tesla be the best podcast ever. Yes. Mm, you get the performance. Um, and moment. because I want it to be yeah. the best podcast ever, we, we have a fun new segment. Here we go. It's called Doper Nope. Um, mm. It's 100% inspired by Twitter. So I did not come up with the name of this segment. Um, but this is a segment where you and I are going to kind of share our opinions on whether we think a moonshot project is dope which means cool and or plausible, or nope, which thinks, you know, we can't. All right, I'm ready. It's cool. We don't okay. think it's plausible. I'm getting warmed up here. Um, I'm getting so in the, the first zone. one here. You want my gut reaction, right? Yes. Just, okay, uh, I'm ready. Okay. Hit me. A high-speed rail project that will travel between Victorville, California, and Las Vegas. Nope. <laughs> nope. So let me give a little more detail give on this. Give me the detail, because so, the so detail is why listeners... I'm a hard nope. Yeah. So Virgin Trains, you know, I guess Virgin is in the, I, I think it's just the branding because it's actually backed by Fortress Investment Group. Um, but they're building a high-speed rail between Las Vegas and the city of Victorville, California, which is about 85 miles away from downtown LA. It would get travelers from Victorville to Las Vegas in about an hour and a half. 
the average fare would be $60 each way. Um, as you know, two former California residents, SoCal residents, um, I'm sure we're all familiar with the uh, drive from LA to Las Vegas. And I may why have do you made it in my Tesla idea? a couple times. All right. Well, wait, what are you? Are you dope or nope? No. You're, you're nope. 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 Because an airplane ticket is like a hundred bucks round trip. Yeah. Why would you pay $60 each way to take the train? So you're And then nope you have to travel the, 85 miles to get there. So you're nope on the fact that it's one leg and you're nope on the fact that it's not a good deal. Yeah. All right. I'm nope because it is 187 miles between Victorville and Las Vegas to drive. And it takes two hours and 49 minutes to do that drive if you're driving the speed limit. If you're, let's face it, everybody's going a little faster on that ride. People are doing about 80, I think. So you're probably think, doing it you in know, 215, right? Yeah. People in Southern California like to brag about how fast they can get to Vegas. Yes. It's a very it's so a Cal big thing. thing. It's like, a big I can thing. get there in two hours. <laughs> yeah, you can go there in two hours if you're doing 110 and you want to get dinged. I mean, I would not do yeah. that. I mean, those overpasses, they're ready. Um, and they ha- and they have they do have those planes flying over once in a while. Um, I just like to set it and forget it. I don't want to get tickets, you know. I, I the Tesla has a a cap on the speed, so I put the speed throttle on so I don't get tickets anymore because I got four tickets in like two years. Putting that aside, I'm a hard nope because this offends me. If we're going to build a goddamn high speed rail, make it high speed. High speed trains in Japan and China are going. Somebody fact check me here, producer uh, uh, Sir Charles, Master Nick. You can fact check me here with the highest speed trains in Japan and China are. If we're going to do this, I want the goddamn highest speed train possible, which I think is 250, 350 miles an hour. Like the, That's like the category of high speed train. This is looking like it's 150 miles per hour, and that is not high speed. That's mm-hmm. not high speed. And if this thing was Victorville to Vegas, and it was 45 minutes, it was half the speed, and the $60, you could buy chips for the Aria, and the Aria would give you, you could buy, you could ride it free for $100 in Aria chips. Now we're talking. Mm-hmm. Now we're talking. So you're saying there would have to be some sort of collaboration between of course. Why casinos not? and everyone in Las Vegas it's a to get people on this train. Yeah, and people, you know what people do is people go from LA to Victorville, get on this massive high-speed rain. Tra- tra- rain, uh, high-speed rail because you wouldn't risk any traffic. It would drop you off at the casino. Hopefully, they have these things go like right down the the strip or something or somewhere really convenient because you don't want to have the last mile take twenty minutes. Um, yeah, and you want to go fast and you want to make the train ride fun. So maybe some free cocktails on the train, huh? Maybe put yeah. maybe you put some slots on the train. Maybe some blackjack on the train. Let's make it a party train, high-speed party train. Come on, people. see now now you know how to sell it. But okay, but the way now, they're selling okay, it. Okay, take my version. Are you nope or are you dope to J-Cal's version? I love your idea. Dope I'm not or, just saying dope. that because you're my boss. Nope but or dope or no. Nope. I love cocktails. Dope um, or no. Nope. And I love slots. Yeah. If, but, but, but yeah, I mean, it just, look, it takes about like 45 minutes from SoCal to Las Vegas mm-hmm. if you're taking like a Southwest flight. Yeah, but think about like all the bucks. coronavirus on that flight. And think about all the distance you could do on the- uh, the, the high speed rail. I mean, it might be. Also, you know what the other thing is about these is I think the energy consumption of planes and the burning of the jet fuel is like, I think, I don't know if you do, I don't know if we talked about this, but uh, Greta, is her name Greta Thunberg? She yeah, has I been so. plane shaming people. You know about plane shame? No. So plane shame more. is a thing. She, I think she's from Sweden. Type in Greta Thunberg uh, plane shaming. And wherever she's from, she started this. Oh, flight shame. Yeah, I I, I got a better name. I'm better at pun, punch plane shame. Plane that, shame that is much better. It rhymes. Anyway, she's plane shaming people, and now they said flights are off in Sweden by ten percent, and people wow. are now. Yeah, so she's really dangerous. I mean, she's she's dangerous. And I didn't she take uh, when she came to America? I think she sailed. So she took fifteen days to get here. Um, she documented on social media. Now that's a little crazy. I'm not going that far. But I do think the plane shame, um, just like we have the loan shame with that uh, we talked about in segment number one, more shame. Can we? Can you throw in the uh, shame uh, sound effect for my soundboard? And I can do shame from shame. Uh, Game of Thrones. Throw in a shame here. Shame. Shame. Okay. 
Shame. Shame. We'll, we'll leave a break in there. <laughs> All right, anyway. So I thought this was supposed to be a lightning round. Let's go to the next one. Okay. So next one here. Um, and everyone at home, we're going to put a picture of this car in the show notes. Yes. So I want you guys to see this car before we even, before you even listen to this part of the podcast. So go into the show notes. Look at the picture of the new dope, well, dope, dope, <laughs> mad. So dope. Subaru, Subaru is developing a new electric vehicle um, jointly with Toyota. Dope, um, and it's going to be called the Avaltis. Um, it's a crossover SUV that's expected to generate about 280 horsepower and travel 310 miles on a single charge. So everyone who's listening, go into the show notes, look at the car, and then you know if you have to pause the podcast, go ahead. Dope. But Jason thinks it's dope. Why do you think it's dope, Jason? Well, it looks like the future. I feel like I'm in Westworld or Blade Runner or something. It looks like a little bit of a spinner. It looks, frankly, like the Cybertruck. And this is kind of the crazy thing. You, this is like, based on the spec, 310 miles. I, I'm driving a 310-mile Model 3 for the last two years. So I'm not so sure like if, if Subaru and Toyota are ever going to get this thing out the door. And they'll probably get it out in three years, so they'll be about five years behind Tesla. But... It is dope looking. The angles are dope. It looks like something out of RoboCop. I am all for these crazy designs that, what do you call it in the uh, automotive industry? The cars that they show? Concepts. Yeah, the concepts. There's too big of a gap between concept cars and the cars they actually deliver. And what I like about Cybertruck and what I like about this, if they actually deliver it, is I feel like I'm driving in the future. And I want to feel like I'm driving in the future. And that's I'm getting a Cybertruck. Because I want to feel like I'm living the Blade Runner lifestyle. What do you think? Dope or nope? Do, do you think that... No, wait, what do you think? Dope Subaru, or nope? Oh, I think it's dope. It's I mean, dope. I have a Subaru right now, which is why Subaru's I include a dope this car. in the... Yeah, I love how which quirky one do you have? Subaru designs their cars. Which one I do mean, you have? They're really quirky. They're really unique. And that's why I bought my yeah. Crosstrack. Um, what are, but, hold on. I got to look at this Crosstrack. Is it pull up the Crosstrack for me? And I'm going to judge you right now. Let me see this Crosstrack. <laughs> I love these. These car, I think it's a great car. It looks good in orange. Did you get the burnt orange? What did you get? Boring blue? I really wanted to get the desert khaki, but mine's just black. Oh, okay. Um, Boring black? I, I was persuaded away from getting the desert khaki color. That's my absolute favorite. It looks like a, like look up desert khaki. Look up desert khaki. I'm Subaru looking at like a burnt track. orange and it looks pretty dope. Uh, yeah. What did you say? Yeah. Desert khaki. There it is. Boom. Let's take a look at this. Oh, yeah, that's pretty nice. It's like a nice green khaki. It's like a very Banana Republic kind of situation. I right, like and it. it's different. And I feel like, I love it. you know, even before the Cybertruck came out, like there was automakers like Subaru kind of making these different cars. And they've been very successful in the U.S. market as a result of that. Because also I, consumers in the U.S. love crossover SUVs. They love that big car that they can take out yeah. camping and there's like all these extensions and the really good thing that they've been able to leverage is that they have a community of enthusiasts mm. that love Subaru even though oh no Subaru people years, are Subaru for life it's like the BMW or Tesla people like you're just for life you know like I, I had a Mercedes at one point I got that GL 550 not like the square one but the big long three row one and I liked it, but I wasn't like, I can't never drive anything again. And when I got a Tesla, I was like, I can't drive anything else but this. You know, it's right, just too yeah. advanced and it, it spoiled me. But all right, listen, I want to get a gas-powered car because I want to get a place in, I want to get a Tahoe car, right? I want to get like a place in Tahoe for skiing and I want to leave like a junker car up there. What's my junker? Well, anyway, listen, even if price is no object, what's my best car to leave at the, um, to leave at my, uh, you know, like cabin in the woods, knowing there's gonna be snow and ice. What's gonna perform best in snow, et cetera? The Ford Bronco, you like that new Ford Bronco that looks like a tank or you like the new Defender that's coming back to America? I kind of like that. Did you see the, have you seen that Jeep? Um, oh, the Gladiator? That Jeep pickup, yes, yeah. I kind of like that too. Right now my order is, um, I like the, my order is the new Land Rover Defender because the Defender hasn't been here for a while. And they right. made it look a little futuristic, but it still has the boxy lines. So now I'm torn between Defender, the new Defender, because I don't want something breaking on me. I need something that can like literally get me home with my kids. Um, or the Jeep. Or I might even get a Subaru. Because so many hey. people told me Subarus <laughs> handle better in snow than anything. And I want to have a car that's gas-powered as my backup to my Teslas in case... You know, like we actually have a civil unrest thing and only gas is available and there's no electricity and the grid goes down. I want to have like a escape bag, escape car. 
Yeah, I mean, what I like about Subaru and the reason why I actually purchased one was because it has all-wheel drive, but it doesn't waste that much gas versus other cars that have all-wheel drive. 30 miles per so gallon? So I, I, I really like it for the all-wheel drive, and it's pretty efficient on gas, and um, the residual value on it is amazing. Ridiculous. You keep like 70% of the value after two years. I might have to get fact-checked on that, but yeah. it's a pre- it's pretty high up there. It, what do you, you think know, of the Defender? A lot of value. What do you think of the new Defender? Do you spend any time looking at that? Yet. I haven't spent a lot of time on yeah. it because, you know, I'm on the EV beat. <laughs> yeah, no, get back to me on the new Defender. Uh, and then the other thing I want to know about is, you know what these old to- Toyota Land Cruisers that they stopped making, what they call Land Cruisers? Yeah, Land Cruisers. Or, or no, FJ Cruiser. FJ probably. Cruiser. The yeah. FJ Cruiser. I mean, that car's ha- sick. That car, I knew somebody who had one, and I thought it was kind of dope, but I thought it looked kind of cheap, to be honest. It looked like kind of plastic. And from what I understand, these are going for the same price that they sold for. They're like thirty grand for a used one, and they they went for like thirty grand because they stopped making them. They got a cult following. The FJ yeah. Cruiser's got a cult following. Thirty grand to buy a used one. Pull up used, um, low mileage Toyota FJ Cruiser. Let me just take right. a look at the I, price. I'm aware of that because um, not twenty twenty. They're very 20 reliable cars, yeah. and there there's a huge community behind them as well. Yeah. Let me look at the car. So facts. that's naturally just going to get the resale value up there. Okay, this one is uh, okay. I'm looking at one. They're saying this is great value. A 2007, which is 13 years old, the Toyota FJ Cruiser, thirteen thousand dollars, hundred five thousand miles on it. 2010, fifteen thousand with a hundred fifteen thousand miles on it. 2013, wow. twenty one thousand with a hundred eleven. These are all seriously high mileage. Do one that's low mileage. Let's see a low mileage one. See if you can. There's some way to do mileage over here. If you scroll down, you'll see low mileage. Yeah. Anyway, that isn't that crazy? How like it they, is really crazy. Here we go. Yeah. I'm gonna do one that's got like they don't make them anymore. Do like thirty you know, thousand. That's good. Twenty five thousand miles. Is good. Let's see. Well, right, here's one. How come that didn't do it? Huh. Trying to find one with like low miles. Maybe they don't even have one with low miles because it's so popular. Everybody drives them everywhere. Okay, let's go back to dope or nope. <laughs> By the way, what is the chances this car comes out this crazy looking Subaru? on a percentage basis that we would ever be able to buy this and what would it cost? Look, I'm going to say 80%. 80%. Okay. And then, 80%. And because, when? Three years from now? Well, I think it's going to, you're going to see it in international markets first, I'm assuming. Um, but it'll make its way to the U S I think it's, look, this is what I was going to ask you or, to, you know, talk, talk about cyber truck oh. has really opened the door for a lot of companies, car companies to really, bring out these radical designs. Yeah, they got to keep up with E. They got to keep up with E. Yeah, and it's like if 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 you can put these cyber trucks on the road, you can put anything out on the road. Did I tell and, you my you know something like like the Avoltis, which is the Subaru vehicle. I mean, it's just going to look like a normal car versus the <laughs> versus the cyber truck. Did, did I tell you my Sean Young cyber truck uh launch party story? No. You know who Sean Young is? The actress who was the, in Blade Runner who played Rachel? Okay, yeah, I, th- I think I, I think I'm familiar with. All her. right, so one of Elon's favorite films, Blade Runner, is my favorite film of all time, and uh, you know, obviously, the Cybertruck has a little bit of inspiration from Blade Runner or from that cyber mm-hmm. kind of period of time, uh, and they had the Blade Runner spinner from the museum actually in the front of the uh, launch of the Cybertruck. So I'm in the VIP section, and I'm talking to um, John Favreau, you know, the director, John Favreau. Who yeah. did Iron Man? So he's obviously good friends with Elon. I'm having a good conversation with him talking about the Mandalorian. I'm just name dropping all over the place. And <laughs> Richard Branson's Island, uh, yeah, John Favreau conversation. I, listen, I'm not paying two fifty for a week on Richard Branson's Island, but you know, suffice it to say. Anyway, uh, Sean Young walks up to me after the presentation's over. She puts her hand on my arm and she says, "I just want to tell you." I am so inspired by your work and I think you were incredible up there today and I think you handled that amazingly and I I just, I'm in awe of what you're doing for humanity. And I looked at it and I said, thank you, Sean Young. I feel the same way about you. Um, I'm not Elon Musk, but I can introduce you to him. He's right there. And she goes, I literally has not taken her arm off, hand off my arm and she, and I'm like about 60% the size of Elon. Like he's big. Mm-hmm. I'm five right. foot nine on a good day. I think he's like six, two or three. Uh, but I guess we do look a little bit similar with both the white guys with, you know, at the same age, but. White guys with big visions. Well, maybe. Anyway, uh, <laughs> he might have a slightly bigger vision. So <laughs> she's still holding my arm, Johan, and she says to me, 
deadpan, looking me down in the eyes. She goes, I still meant everything I said. Wow. And I laughed. Like, <laughs> she is so awesome. Like that she is so quick on her feet. And then I introduced her to Elon. I was like, yeah, here's Elon. Here's Sean Young from Blade Runner. It was pretty is, funny. Is she going to be a part of one of your launch events coming up? Or Yeah. You know what? I just, all this no more live events. Everything I'm doing is virtual right now. So, but anyway, this right. has been a great episode. I think we're starting to get into a rhythm here. You and I have a little chemistry. Keep the weird coming. You know, I really like this doper note. I think people are going to get into that. And maybe we get some reader questions and maybe we can give people some advice uh, and some how-to stuff towards the end. What do you think of that, Johan? Like if people had a yeah, question for us. Yeah, I think it's us. a great idea. And look, if anyone has any ideas for different like segments or something that they would like yeah. being discussed on the podcast, um, tweet me or Jason. Jason's handle is very easy to remember. It's at Jason, but there mine is Dude Johan. Dude Johan. <laughs> Dude. Dude Johan. Johan. I love Dude, it. Johan. Dude Johan. Yeah. Dude Johan. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love but that it. wraps it up for all us right. here on the Inside Transportation Podcast. Thank you so much, Jason. Yeah. We'll see you all next Thursday. Yes. Take care. <laughs>